This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In December 2020, Ovid Therapeutics Experimental Therapy, OV101, for the rare neurodevelopmental condition, Angelman syndrome, failed to meet its primary endpoint in a phase three clinical trial, and the company chose to discontinue development. But rather than let the data from the study languish on the shelf, Ovid made the decision to contribute it to the Angelman Syndrome Foundation's latter database. We spoke to Ovid's CEO, Jeremy Levin, and Angelman Syndrome Foundation CEO, Amanda Moore, about the latter database. Ovid's decision to contribute its data to it, and why the two believe other drug developers should take similar steps to share their data with patients and researchers to advance the understanding of rare diseases. Amanda, Jeremy, thanks for joining us. We're so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us. It's a great pleasure, Danny. Thanks for having us on. We're going to talk about Angelman syndrome data and Ovid's recent decision to provide data from its clinical study in Angelman syndrome to the Angelman syndrome foundation. Let's start with Angelman syndrome itself, though. Uh, Amanda, for listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? Angelman syndrome is a rare neurological disease that, um, you know, it can happen in and manifest in several different ways with the genotype, but typically something has happened to the 15th chromosome, whether it's a mutation, a deletion, a you know, anything that could cause something to happen to that 15th chromosome, then ends up displaying as Angelman syndrome. How does Angelman syndrome manifest itself and progress? So this is interesting because it's a very diverse, depending on who and what parent you talk to, um, most cases, this is not something that's discovered at birth. Um, typically, there's normal births. Um, nothing really displays at the beginning. Sometimes there is an issue with um, maybe swallowing, eating, some GERD. But, you know, for most families, that can typically be something that's typical for any neurotypical child. So um, it's it's hard to know and it's Angelman syndrome isn't quite diagnosed, you know, right from the beginning. Um, but, you know, it manifests in, you know, around three or four months, you start seeing that they're not progressing or developing like um, maybe other children around them. Uh, you might start seeing, like I said, some issues with feeding, some issues with low muscle tone. Uh, you'll see some issues with possible seizure activity. And typically what happens is, um, you know, families start seeing this and they start asking questions and they, you know, go to every doctor known to man, neurologist, pediatrician, 
whoever it may be to try to get an answer to find out what is actually going on. And the only way to really determine that it's Angelman syndrome is through genetic testing. And, you know, typically genetic testing in the past was not the first go-to. They would do plenty of tests, EEGs, MRIs, EKGs. You know, it could be uh, years. We weren't diagnosed until Jackson was two and a half years old because he had his first seizure and they finally did genetic testing. So it manifests in many different ways, but typically it starts off with those developmental delays. What treatments are available today and what's the prognosis for someone with the condition? So the prognosis is is typically a long, um, you know, a long typical life. Um, but right now there is no any, no sort of therapeutic treatment or curative treatment. But there are symptomatic treatments. A lot of our individuals with Angelman syndrome are on um, seizure medication. They could be on some sort of um, gastro medicine, whether it's Miralax, you know, something for GERD. They could be on sleeping medication, anxiety medication. So it's, it, we, you know, right now we treat it very symptomatically, but there are, you know, currently there are three different clinical trials um, working uh, in, in process right now, which is really exciting for the community of trying to activate that paternal gene because, you know, that, that um, maternal gene is either deleted, mutated, or something's going on with it that's not activating that paternal gene to create that UBE3A that's actually missing. So the great thing is, is that these trials are really working hard to activate it. So there are three clinical trials happening um, currently, but right now, um, as we speak, there's no therapeutic or curative treatment. Jeremy, Ovid was one of the first drug developers to work in Angelman. What are the challenges of pursuing a condition like this? Well, I think, first of all, you need to look at this, not just about Angelman's, but about CNS generally, the brain. And the reason why is that each disorder of the brain teaches you about other disorders in the brain. Now, I think one of the great problems with discovering medicines for any disorder of the brain is that over the years we've had to tackle enormously problematic issues. We've seen only incremental progress, but the real problems were longer, costlier trials, challenges, and specifically, this is very important, determining what is the trial endpoint that you're going to see. How will you demonstrate that you have a clinically meaningful effect of your medicine. And so, you know, essentially what you're looking for is if you're, if you're, if you've broken your arm, you know when your arm's healed because you can use that arm again normally. That's an objective endpoint. So for the brain, it's very difficult to do that for many disorders. Regulators and physicians want a hard endpoint, tough to do. And of course, in cancer, the same kind of thing. Cancer, hard endpoint, can you make people live longer? Very easy. The second, that's another aspect which is really important for the brain is that there is an enormously high placebo effect. And that means when you give a drug to people, you expect to see a change. But sometimes when you give a drug to a patient who's got a disorder of uh, that, such as depression, schizophrenia, and many other disorders of the brain, the very act of taking something into their mouth, be it a drug or actually a sugar pill, changes them. So the risk of a late-stage trial failure 
in placebos is enormously higher. Sometimes we also have biomarkers, which are common. For example, if you take a blood test for a cancer, you can see if the cancer is there or not. Prostate cancer, this is good. You don't have similar biomarkers in the brain, and it's only been over the last few years that we've started to be able to use EEG uh, and a number of others, but it's really been tough. And then a last two, two elements that one should consider here, as, and then we'll dive into Angelman's, is that it's really difficult, more difficult than any other organ in the body, to be able to understand how to target the very specific cells in the brain that are causing the problem. Very difficult. The brain is an enormous organ, very difficult, locked up in a skull, surrounded itself by a very impermeable membrane, the uh, blood-brain barrier, and very tough to get to. And as a consequence, you know, a lot of people have just abandoned the area. And unlike uh, cancer and other research area, until recently, it hasn't seen an enormous resurgence. Now it is. And that's because we're learning how to deal with all of these. Now, with regard to Angelman, you know, it was particularly challenging because we were the first ever company to tackle it. And we worked with the community. There'd be no, there's nothing, but we didn't have any other clinical trials to follow. And uh, people like you, Amanda, we worked with you to essentially create a completely new way of measuring how the medicine might work. That's called the Clinical Global Impression Improvement Scale and making it specific for Angelman syndrome. Unfortunately, that itself is a very difficult thing to measure because you have to have physicians measure it. Otherwise, it is very subjective. Much of what was even unknown about this was simple facts. We didn't know how the disorder progressed from childhood into adulthood. And of course, those with Angelman's can live well into their 70s. So there was a real progression from childhood to adolescence to adulthood that you had to deal with. And it wasn't like a disorder like cancer, where you know that if you don't treat the patient, the patient will die. This is not the case. This is an evolution. So what's really interesting is that Cancer has taught us a lot over the last 10 years. Much of the problems that, Danny, that we faced in the past with all these difficult disorders related to CNS, that's going away. It took 15 years of development in immuno-oncology to teach us in other areas how we can break it open. Now, how do we break it open? So those break those things that are being broken open is we're beginning really to understand what's causing the disease, what genes, what proteins, really important there. We're being able to diagnose people much easier with MRI. Indeed, even with MRI, we can even begin to understand how particular molecules bind into places in particular places of the brain. And then understanding how we get uh, drugs to penetrate the blood-brain barrier has advanced enormously because of the work that was done previously in cancer. We've understood how to manipulate molecules much better. And finally, we really, now we can begin to understand how to map different parts of the brain. There's a huge initiative in mapping different parts of the brain. 
So all this, to my mind, is very good news for the Angelman community. And from my perspective, although we were the first, we weren't the last. And there are now, when we showed people that you could do it, then all sorts of other companies came in. And I don't know the exact number, Danny, but it's probably close to between 15 and 20. And I'm very sure that from this, something will come. Given that you have such a rich pipeline and no shortage of opportunities to pursue, what compelled you to make Angelman Syndrome your lead program? Oh, that's really, <laughs> you know, that goes to the heart of why one's in the world of biotech and why one's in medicine. You do things that are important to patients and families. And what you need to do is identify, for me, it's a, I have a covenant with patients. I believe strongly that you need to find the best possible medicines. And if you, they don't, there's nobody who has a medicine, then you go exactly where nobody else is if you believe you could make a difference. So I co-founded Ovid because I wanted to serve patients and families who didn't have any therapeutic options. And I did a full review of Angelman's. And I did that knowing that having come from large companies, that inside these companies, there were many programs that have been developed, stealth programs, you might say, really well-meaning scientists who wanted to convince their bosses that they had something wonderful, but in fact, never saw the light of day. They were there. We knew it. And what I wanted to do was to see if we couldn't match one of these programs to the needs of a rare disorder area. And I'd studied Angelman's. And of course, as you know, Angelman's occurs, in, it's not it's not rare, that rare. Actually, it's one in 15,000 live births. There are pro about 4,000 individuals in the United States with Angelman's. And they range from age from birth all the way to about 70 years old. And when I knew that there nobody had truly dug into how you would change this, we did. And we looked at the genetics, we looked at the way people were working on it, and we decided we could make a difference. And and bottom line is, you know, we've, we, we really believe that by doing this, we would pave the way, not just for ourselves, but for other, and we have paved that way. And furthermore, just well, we now st still have in our pipeline a really important potential medicine, OV882, which is what's called a short hairpin RNA. It's really, a, a, it's one which we will now build on the back of having watched our others who followed us try and have learned more about Angelman's and hopefully we will have a very important medicine there. In December, 2020, your experimental therapy for Angelman failed to meet its primary endpoint and the company chose to discontinue development. As you mentioned, you've got another earlier stage therapy and development for the condition, but Ovid made the decision to contribute data from the study to the Angelman Syndrome Foundation. Why did Ovid decide to do this? Well, yes, very important. You know, right now, although we're focused on rare epilepsies and we do have the Angelman program in our pipeline, we made that we learned a lot in our process with Angelman's. We chose to share the baseline data from our phase three Neptune trial with LADDER. And basically LADDER stands, it's L-A-D-D-E-R. It stands for linking Angelman's and Duke 15Q data for expanded research. 
It's a great name, actually. And that is really an ex excellent database. And it, it, we view this as something which is designed to help scientific and medical research community create a much more complete picture of the condition and actually draw very, potentially draw insights. So our view was, given the enormous collaboration that we'd had with the community, and that we had likely the largest compilation of baseline data in Angelman syndrome, probably it's really, it's well over a hundred patients. We felt it was our responsibility. Then it was our responsibility. This is one way when you're not successful in the clinical trial that you can then move straight forward, take the learnings you have from that clinical trial, which although the molecule may not have been successful, the trial itself was harvested an enormous amount of information, and that could potentially help break open the disorder. So what we hope by donating this data is that the scientists will use it to begin to paint a much more sophisticated picture of the condition and its progression. And that's what our intent was. Our intent is let's, let's together tackle this disorder. We know that failure is far more common than success in drug development. There's a lot of data held captive within biopharmaceutical companies from failed studies. Why don't pharmaceutical companies generally share this data? Boy, oh boy, what a great question. You know, we always hear about that it takes one drug out of 10 to make a successful one, and that's why it costs so much money. Well, the real, real point here is that those other nine have informed you of all sorts of things. And why don't we see that data? Well, I think there are, you know, companies tell themselves that they can't share this data for many reasons. I am not convinced by them. Let me walk you through some of the reasons that we hear about it. Some are legitimate, some aren't. Concerns about data privacy are important, but can be solved. These data privacy and rights, for example, in Europe, very important. It's such as the GDPR in Europe, very important, but you can deal with it. The second is that by not ad hoc assuming that you may not be successful, we don't seek informed consent from patients and sites to share. We should do. There's no reason why you can't. It's difficult, but you can. Now, the other thing about, uh, about this is that some companies are and investors are concerned about a, they may have a secondary program. And what they don't want to do is to advantage their competitors who might be there. We choose a different reason. We think that if you've got a great medicine, and even if it's a follow-up to one that hasn't been successful, you can learn a lot and you improve the patient understanding, the family understanding, the community, the physician understanding, so that your drug can enter into the marketplace as soon as possible. And here's perhaps the one that is least acceptable. People feel embarrassed over setbacks. My view is very simple. We should feel super sad. We should weep, and I did, uh, when our trial was not successful. But we should never feel embarrassed about it. We invested millions of dollars. We did it the right way. The only way that embarrassment is really real is when in fact you know you've done something wrong and we never did, we did everything right. So in the condition like Angelman's, I think that it's important for all involved to understand that it 
that there is a range of data and that data that comes from the clinical trials is very important. For LADA, you know, what we did is we provide what's called baseline data. This is essentially the data that is inherent in the individuals that have gone through the trial, but before they've ever had a drug. So in fact, we're just simply looking at them and studying them. This is very important because this data helps the community paint a much richer and much more complete picture of people living with the condition. So something that had never been done before, but we're able to provide this. And it means you have a standardized way of looking with it. But that's the most important thing about this, Tony, is it, it, you, can, you can look at it over, as the disorder changes and affects the individual over age. After all, we looked at babies, we looked at adolescents, and we looked at adults. And that's so important because this is what's called a neurodevelopmental disorder. It affects the development of the individual and therefore the progress through different stages of life. So my view is very straightforward. By collecting and mining the data, researchers in the community uh, may be able to make connections and see insights that we could not previously see. The data Ovid is providing will be housed on the Ladder database. Um, Amanda, what is the Ladder database and how is it used? So, you know, as Jeremy was just talking about, the Ladder Learning Database, and Ladder means linking Angelman Syndrome and DUPE15Q data to accelerate research. It was created um, first and foremost to collect clinical data. We have close to 23 clinics in the United States that are seeing individuals with either Angelman syndrome or DUPE15Q syndrome. And we thought to ourselves, this is excellent data that hasn't been collected for years. So Ladder was actually created to be the place where we could collect clinical data to help accelerate treatments, to help um, accelerate standards of care in both disease areas. But what it's turned out to be is really the brain of data for the Angelman syndrome community, because what we found was we had so much, so many data sources that were siloed and not being used. You know, when it comes to data, especially maybe in the industry field with, with clinicians, researchers, they tend to, to keep that data close, right? And so what we did as a foundation was say, we need to create something that is a place where people can add their data that we can link it to other data sources. And then, you know, we can expedite getting this data out to, um, to industry, to researchers, to clinicians, to really expedite this idea of getting us to the finish line of a therapeutic treatment. So that's kind of what Ladder has become. Ladder now holds all of the natural history study data that has been done by Dr. Wynn Han Tan at Boston's Children. It now holds all the clinical data that's happening in the clinics. It holds the registries of both Angelman Syndrome Foundation and DUPE15Q um, Alliance. It holds some research data that's been done for years. And now, luckily enough, we, we're here to talk about um, getting really important data that we've gotten from Ovid. Why is the Ovid data of interest? In, in what way might it improve the understanding of Angelman syndrome or help advance the development of therapies to treat it? Well, you know, in my opinion, data, no matter what data it is, is important when you're in the kind of landscape that we're in with Angelman syndrome. We have so many 
um, different pharmaceutical companies in the space. And a lot of what they need is they need to understand the natural history of the natural progression of this disease in order to be able to find endpoints and biomarkers and be able to really truly run a clinical study with hoping that the ending result will be getting these medications, these treatments to market. So the more data that we can have, the, the better. And you know, the great thing about the Ovid data, Ovid was the first, one of the first clinical trials that was out there and they, they collected such a robust data set and the fact that they are willing to now give that data set to Ladder, which essentially you're giving it back to the community that you're serving, um, we're able to use that data to you know, help other researchers, help other industry understand um, you know, some of the progressions here, but also understand the importance of you know, when we move into these invasive trials, it's going to be important to, that we're going to have a placebo arm. And so a lot of what happened with the AVA trial is, is huge around this, this idea of the placebo control. So being able to use that data and see that data is going to be really important to help us, you know, sidestep some of that stuff in the future. And I think the one thing that's really important to mention here is that, um, you know, the community, the families are really the ones when it comes to these trials that are putting themselves out there. They're traveling, they're, you know, entering their individual with Angelman syndrome into a trial. So they're taking that risk. They're taking time away from their family, from work. And so, you know, what we try to tell industry, one beautiful gift you can give back to all those families is the data you collected in that trial. And the latter is a great place that people can put that because there's a data access committee that oversees that. We clean it up and we get it, to, we, we make sure that it's getting used and getting to the right people. Jeremy, Ovid is developing OV882, as you mentioned earlier. This is an RNA therapy for Angelman syndrome. Rather than targeting a neurotransmitter as OV101 did, this is designed to target the underlying genetic cause of the condition. Where are you in development and what's the path forward? Boy, it's such a fun program. I really admire this. Um, first of all, you know, while we weren't successful in our first molecule, in the molecule itself, we were successful in getting a very deep understanding of the disorder. And so we committed ourselves to the Angelman community, and we are very committed. And what we want to do is to see effective therapies for these families. Now, for those of your listeners who are not familiar, just, and I suspect you may be, but just let me just touch on this for a second, and if you don't mind. The, the most common cause of Angelman syndrome is, is a, related to a defect of the maternal UB3A gene. So it's a genetic death of the mother. Essentially, it's a loss of a functional UB3A protein. And this UB3A protein does many things. And as you say, we targeted one of those things in our first trial. In contradistinction, our, our OV882 program is designed to go right to the heart of the genetic cause of Angelman syndrome. It's the, the whole concept behind this is to deliver an optimal dosing that will for longer treat and will allow for longer treatment durations, perhaps as note once a year, perhaps even once every two years, than many of the other medicines that we're seeing in the developmental pipeline now. The kind of reasons that we believe that is the current medicines that are targeting the genetics are what are called ASOs. They have to be given every three months. 
our view is that eight, OV882 is a, what's called a short hairpin non-coding RNA vector. What it does is it tackles the UB3A anti-sense molecule. And that it, we want to reduce. We want to reduce that so we can restore the UB3A expression in the paternal gene, in the father's genetic copy. So this is something that others haven't done. It's something that we know we've been able to do and that we know that as we study the thesis behind this, we believe that administering a medicine once every three months is going to be tough for many people, particularly as you have to go to a hospital and you have to have this put into your spinal cord. This is something which is so-called intrathecally for the children. That's a lot to endure. So what we want to do is something that can avert frequent administration. And where we've been working intimately with the University of Connecticut, and it, by, although it's early in the its preclinical stages, we're optimistic that it will actually be very successful over time. Jeremy, do you think Ovid's decision to share its data might help encourage other drug developers to take similar steps and share their data from failed studies? Boy, I hope so. I think it's a very serious matter not sharing your data. I think that by sharing your data, you advance the field. If you don't advance the field, true cures can't ultimately be achieved. Let me give you an example of this. Why is it important? It's important to know what the baseline of these individuals are. In other words, what would it, remember what I said to you about what a placebo effect is? A placebo effect is one where you don't know what the drug is actually doing. Now, I know when I take an individual with Angelman's out of their home, take them to a clinical trial site, their behavior changes. And if you're looking at an endpoint like the CGII, unless you know what the simple moving of the individual to that site does, how are you going to then measure what the drug is doing? So the only way you can do this is by having a fundamental understanding of what the baseline is, what happens to these children when they go through a clinical trial without ever giving them a drug. That's what's important. And then and the old, only alternative to this is running what's called a placebo-controlled trial, where individuals enter a trial, some are given the drug, some are not given the drug. And that's very difficult when you're giving intrathecal injections because you now have to give an intrathecal injection that doesn't have the drug with one that does have the drug. Others have done this. Uh, there are such trials, but many of the families don't want to go through the knowledge that the child is simply getting an injection without a drug. So sharing the data is critical for people to understand what the placebo effects are. And for my mind, it was that kind of mentality that brought us into the Angelman syndrome development area. And from my way, my mind of thinking, that's why it's so responsible to share data. In closing, I'd just like to ask each of you, what's the case you would make to other drug developers for them to share data? Jeremy? 
Yeah, I think so. And I'm sure that Amanda's got a perspective on this. And I, Amanda, I'd love, I'm really looking forward to listening to what you have to say here. But look, it's really simple. This is the future. There are responsible and transparent ways to share data that can have a very important and significant scientific and public health benefit. And when we look at communities such as the Angelman community, this is what we should be doing. For example, you know, we, we, we look today at the COVID-19 pandemic, which demonstrated categorically how important it was to share data. It advanced therapeutics remarkably rapidly. Now we can do the same with Angelman's if we chose to do so. So to my mind, data sharing can lead to greater collaboration and increased confidence in finding and sharing insights across communities. Amanda? Well, I think that, you know, this is a beautiful example of how industry and patient advocacy organizations can and should work together. You know, there I get the idea of this data and how much money industry puts into getting this data, but, you know, to, to set the tone for the Angelman community that, you know, that Ovid has set to say, you know, we invested a lot into this program and we really care about the Angelman community and we care so much that we are going to give this data back so you can use it to continue the, the, the hard work and the fight that you're doing to find treatments for your individuals with Angelman syndrome. So my hope is that all of the other industry that are in the space maybe are listening right now and they can see the importance that this has on our community and the beautiful gift it you you know they have the power to give back to the community in order for us to get to that finish line. Amanda Moore, CEO of the Angelman Syndrome Foundation and Jeremy Levin, chairman and CEO of Ovid Therapeutics. Amanda, Jeremy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having us on this very important topic. Thank you, Dan. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.